Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Rob Breckenridge. On today's episode, how savvy are Canadians when it comes to spotting fake news? A new survey has some interesting answers. Also, a look at how Canada is competing globally for tech talent. The Canadian Pediatric Society calling on governments to provide free contraception to young people. Plus, Canadians seem to love their gas guzzlers more than any other country, it turns out. concern about how social media might be uh, manipulated in the upcoming federal election or or how it can be used to to advance certain causes or the concern more specifically uh, that there's a lot of nonsense out there a lot of fake news out there and are people able to see through it right we can try to put the onus uh, on facebook and other companies to try to police what's showing up on their platforms but ultimately you know falls to individuals that we ought to be skeptical of what we're coming across. We're not sure about uh, but the accuracy of something, that there are ways of double-checking things. But do we do so? And someone sent me something on Facebook the other day, in fact. They were quite upset about it. It was uh, ostensibly, anyway, allegedly an account uh, of a, a woman in a grocery store who was wearing a full burqa and someone was wearing a Canadian flag pin and this woman got very upset. And how outrageous this is. That somebody coming to this country wearing this fundamentalist religious garb would dare question somebody for wearing a Canadian flag pin. But where, where's the story coming from? As it happens, you can see where this story comes from, and it's been uh, floating around for many years. At times, it's an American flag in the story, or the versions have it as a British flag. Uh, but there doesn't appear to be any actual incident that this story stems from. I mean, it's basically a legend. But it fits into a, a certain worldview. Uh, and so people see that and they post it or they share it. And, and that's how this stuff spreads. So it's, it's not a new phenomenon, but I think certainly uh, people have found ways of, of exploiting that. New survey out this week from Ipsos finds that Canadians are getting duped and are willing to admit in some cases that they have fallen victim to fake news. Younger Canadians are more willing, it seems, to, to admit that. But it also does show that Canadians do have, and there's been an increase, in fact, in Canadians' trust of news media. Joining us to talk more about all of these findings, very pleased to welcome to the program Sean Simpson, who is Vice President of Ipsos, Ipsos.com. Uh, Sean, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. All right, well, let's talk about uh, this, this survey and understanding then whether people are encountering fake news, whether they know they've encountered fake news, uh, how people are, are maybe in some cases being taken in. How do you go about gauging that? Mm. Well, uh, we've asked now uh, for two years in a row um, whether or not people have, have uh, falsely believed a news story 
that they subsequently found out was was real. Uh, and uh, this year's survey showed that 58% admit that that's happened to them, but that's actually down seven points uh, since last year. So I, I think one of the main findings of this research is that uh, Canadians uh, in an era of fake news are becoming more savvy, or just think they're becoming more savvy at being able to identify it, and as a result are being uh, fooled less often. But still, 58%. Uh, is a is a significant uh, chunk of the population who who is who is wrongly believed fake news. But I guess you know it, people are, are are people willing to admit, and and maybe in some cases either people are maybe embarrassed that they they fell for something that wasn't true, or maybe they they didn't even know that they'd fallen for it in the first place. Yeah, well, it, there there are two things here, right? One, are you willing to to admit it? Uh, and then, as you say. Uh, did you subsequently find out that it was real, right? You you don't know if you've been fooled unless that second condition applies, that you subsequently find out that it's real. Now, we know in our poll here that 29% of, of Canadians uh, just agree, admit that they have no idea how to distinguish between real news and fake. Now, that's down six points as well. So those two figures correlate. Fewer people are being duped. Fewer people say they have they have no idea. Uh, but there's an eight-point gap between women and men, women uh, being more likely to say they have no idea how to distinguish between real and fake news. And if, in fact, you have no idea, then how, how do you know whether you're being fooled? Now, was there a component in this survey, or was it in a different survey where, where people were presented? Like, there was kind of a, mm. a, a test of sorts, wasn't it? Yeah, well, two years ago, we actually did a, did a test where we presented uh, people with, uh, with images and, and, uh, um, and have them identify whether or not a particular image from a news site, an online news site, was fake or real. And uh, they didn't do so hot. Um, <laughs> you know, many, many Canadians were, were, were fooled by uh, things that they thought were legitimate and weren't or, or, or vice versa. So what's the difference that we're seeing then between uh, different generations, baby boomers, Gen Xers, so-called millennials? Do, do they have different views or, or at least maybe more of a willingness to, to acknowledge that they've, they've fallen for this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, millennials are most likely to say that they falsely believed a news story that they subsequently found out was was real. Now, I don't think it's because they're you know less intelligent or less able uh, to uh, naturally identify what's what's real or fake. But we know that younger people are are getting their news predominantly from social media and online sources, and that is the incubator of fake news. Um, things get passed along and go viral very very quickly. Uh, older people, uh, Gen Xers, and particularly Boomers, are um, much less likely to get their news from those sources. Much more likely to be exposed to more traditional news sources like broadcast TV, radio, uh, and uh, and print newspapers. For example, they have higher trust uh, in in those outlets, uh, and I think in an era of fake news, those more mainstream or traditional outlets are are the source for truth. Yeah, and and it's maybe not surprising, or at least I, I think it's encouraging that that people realize that there there are reliable news outlets out there, and and so there there seems to be a correlation that the more we become concerned about. Uh, less than trustworthy sources out there, maybe the more faith there is in journalistic institutions. Yeah, that, that's right. And and we've actually found in the last year that trust in mainstream media has increased, but the proportion who trust various 
online only sources or social media sources is actually declining. Um, one of the things that we we found quite interesting is even though uh, millennials are the most likely to say that they've been fooled by fake news, they're also the most likely to fact check the stories themselves. So because they're they're probably exposed to more fake news than than uh, older generations, they're more likely to take that next step and say. Well, you know, I actually go out and, and verify against another source to make sure that what I'm reading is actually real. One of the questions in this I found interesting, because I think there's a lot of confirmation bias that exists, but th- this is flat out asking people to admit their confirmation bias, and, and some do. The question was, if I disagree with the news story, it is likely fake. And th- there were people out there who agreed with that statement. Yeah, that's right. As you say, um, you know, people might might be very reluctant to um, to to admit that, um, and uh, and so you expect that you know zero percent of the population would 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 agree with that. You know, admit their own their own bias. Uh, and what we found: twenty eight percent agree uh, that uh, you know, even if it's just somewhat, but but they agree that uh, if uh, they see a story and they don't like what it says. It's probably false. Very interesting. Uh, more at Ipsos.com. Sean, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, tucked away in what was otherwise a somewhat forgettable federal budget uh, was a decision about a program called the Global Talent Stream. Now, this was launched in 2017 as a pilot project meant to try to, to draw tech talent to Canada but to also streamline the immigration process uh, for workers in that industry. The federal budget this year made that program permanent uh, and was certainly celebrated by many in industry. So it raises the question, I guess, of, of whether we're doing enough to compete globally for that tech talent. And is there an opportunity for Canada to capitalize on some of the immigration changes that are happening in the U.S.? If the U.S. is going to take a harder line, does that create an opportunity for Canada to lure tech talent here? Well, joining us to talk a bit more about how we're doing on this front, maybe what more we need to do. Very pleased to welcome the program, Irfan Raji, CEO of Mob Squad, of course, based right here in Calgary. An announcement uh, that we got with much fanfare last year. Irfan, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Rob. We appreciate your interest in what we're working on. Well, I think it is important because, obviously, this is an important industry. It's one that Canada has to compete not just against the U.S. and Silicon Valley in particular, but, but globally. In, in a broad sense, Irfan, what's your sense of how well-positioned Canada is? So I'd say uh, overall, I think we're very well positioned, especially with respect to the United States right now. You know, being a Canadian uh, citizen is very attractive to people that are technology workers in the United States. And we're finding right now with some of the changes that are coming through with the H-1B lottery and some of the uh, process changes that are happening that many people are being denied visas. And so these are people that have been educated often in the United States, have worked in Silicon Valley for three or four or five years and are being asked to go back home to China or Brazil or Russia, but would look at Calgary as an alternative. And so we're in the U.S. picking up talent that's highly trained, uh, that's, that's interested in staying in North America. And I think because of the global talent stream, that's actually been made possible. You know, when it takes three or four or six or ten months to get a work permit or get a permanent residency card, you know, the ability to move uh, to Canada is more difficult when you think about people being denied their visa renewals, they need to leave the U.S. In, in 30 or 60 days. And we're in a position right now as Mob Squad where we can move them onto a work permit through the global talent stream 
in under 30 days and often in under two weeks. Uh, so the decision then to make that permanent, how, how important was that? It was pretty critical for Canada to compete globally in terms of this program being something that people would put into the consideration set. When it was something that was just a pilot, it was hard for people to take it seriously because they didn't know if this was something that they should be considering, you know, when their visa was, was to get renewed. And remember, most of these visas last for three years, and so it's not an urgent thing for many people. But now that they know it is a permanent program, we've become, for many of these folks, potentially their preferred option instead of renewing their visa when they come to you. So where is this tech talent coming from? It's coming from around the world. I mean, there's a shortage of tech talent globally. Um, but if you were to look at uh, in Canada and in the United States, if you were to look at the H-1B visa, the Genius Visa program, which admits 85,000 people into technology jobs into the U.S. every year, they're coming from places like India and China and Brazil, um, often Eastern Europe, uh, Russia, Ukraine, uh, similar to where talent's coming to, uh, to, to Canada from to, to work in technology. But it's really, it's really a global pool of talent. In terms of, of growing the tech industry from within and, and having our universities churning out that, that kind of talent, does that go hand-in-hand hand with developing the industry, or do we need to be doing more on, on the development side here in Canada? It's, it's an and, not an or. Mm-hmm. And so, absolutely, it's doing... Uh, It's helping us build our industry here because what we're doing is we're trying to find people that have got the experience and the training in some of the best markets in the world, namely Silicon Valley, and bringing them to Calgary to act as mentors to people that are, you know, younger in our industry here that are fresh graduates of the University of Calgary. And if we can bring those two things together, that's how we're going to diversify the economy, by bringing leaders in that can help us immediately reshape our economy in Calgary today, but also then helping them push training uh, in our universities and college systems such that we can take workers that might have otherwise, or students that might have otherwise done other jobs, and make them technology workers instead. Well, and, and you travel to Silicon Valley. You bring that message with you. What, what is that message? What, what are you telling folks in Silicon Valley? It's a couple things that we're sharing. Um, I think that, you know, Canada is, is, is a fantastic place to, to make roots and, and to be a citizen. In the United States, for most of these employees that are coming from abroad, they're on a visa treadmill. They're often on visas for 10 or 15 or 20 years. If you come to work for Mob Squad, you get the same high-quality Silicon Valley work because we port the Silicon Valley job to Calgary, but we get to make you a Canadian citizen in under four years. And so that's very appealing to people. Uh, And quality of life is appealing to people. You know, the folks at Calgary Economic Development have been super helpful to us in terms of promoting Calgary as a livable city, a city with very low cost of living, a city where you can buy a home, a city where your kids can go to a great school, um, where there's public health care. A lot of these things don't exist. You know, for workers in the U.S., that are technology workers often making 150,000, 200,000 US dollars a year, they still have to live with roommates because cost of living is just so high down there. Yeah, I've heard some crazy stories about uh, what it what it's like in and around San Francisco down in Silicon Valley. You know, at the same time, I mean, you know, even though Canada's competing against the US, I mean, Calgary's competing against Toronto, Calgary's competing against Vancouver, Calgary's competing against Montreal. Those cities are all competing against each other. So how does Calgary compete with some of those Canadian cities? It's a great question and you know, I'm uh, actually not a native Calgarian. I've lived here for 6 years. I've lived in Toronto for 8 years. I was born and raised in Vancouver, so I know these different cities. But I also know why I've chosen Calgary as a city that I want to have my family in. And so it's about personal stories of why people have made the decision to be in this community. And the things that we're doing as a a community to build this city, you know, what council did by increasing public spending on the arts to say this is a city that has culture. This is a city that has, 
you know, great outdoors. This is a city that has great schools. It's about talking about those things. It's not because Toronto is not a great city and Vancouver is not a great city and Montreal is not a great city, but it's not the right city for everyone. And so what we try to do is find people that, for which Calgary is the right city to call home. So that, that's part of the message, right? It's, a, it's about that livability. It's not just to say that, you know, companies A, B, and C have all set up shop in Calgary. You should, too. It's about, it's about selling the city. That's exactly right. It's about selling the city because companies go where talent is, right? If you were to think about um, the Amazon recent bid, right. they, in many ways, picked the city where talent wanted to live. And so, you know, as Calgarians, if we want to help diversify our economy and our city and bring new different companies here... It's incumbent on us to build a great city. It's incumbent on us to have, you know, great culture, to have great sports teams, to have things to do on the weekend, to have a city where it's, it's truly community-oriented. I think we have these things, and it's about public investments in making those things happen. It's not about building just roads. It's about building infrastructure that people want to enjoy. All right. Well, uh, more to mobsquad.io. Irfan, thank you so much for joining us here today. really appreciate this. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. That is uh, Irfan Raji. He is CEO of Mob Squad, based right here in Calgary. What's well, interesting, I mean, the March for Life, of course, was was yesterday. The question uh, of abortion was in the news this week. But I think regardless of what side of that debate one is on, that we all have a vested interest in reducing the number of unplanned pregnancies each year. So how do we do that? In particular, among young people, we don't want uh, the number of teen pregnancies to be going up. Certainly, we don't want young people to be dealing with uh, sexually transmitted diseases and infections. So we got a vested interest in trying to prevent all of these things. So what is the most effective way of doing so? The Canadian Pediatric Society uh, releasing a new position statement this week calling for contra- rather for confidential access to contraceptives in order to minimize the personal financial cost of unintended pregnancies. In other words, for Canadians 25 and under, the contraceptives should be widely available and available at no cost. So, what kind of a price tag does that entail? Who should fit the, foot the bill for that? Why does society have a vested interest in encouraging this? Joining us uh, to talk more about it, very pleased to welcome the program, uh, Dr. Josie uh, Melio, uh, Adolescent Health Specialist in Montreal, author of the uh, CPS position statement on this issue. Uh, Dr. Melio, thank you for joining us here. Welcome to the program. It's my pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, let's talk about why we, we need to look at the issue in these terms and why it's important then for access to contraception to be improved in Canada. Um. We have a system in Canada where uh, we the medical care is uh, provided under the uh, health care plans, which is sensational because, for example, in the U.S., they struggle with that as well. But once you have the medical care, um, get a prescription and you still have to get the contraceptive. For uh, many people, that's not a problem, but for some... It's a a real challenge. We run into it all the time where we're having to try to help kids figure out how to get their their contraceptive of choice covered. And um, uh, I think that we need to find a more systematic way to be able to uh, ensure that all young people are able to get contraception if they want it. 
So this is, uh, this is the simplest solution, the way that then you have everybody covered in the same manner. Uh, it's easy to get, and, uh, and we can then make sure that people are able to use the contraception that they want. Okay, but I, I mean, isn't it already rather accessible? I mean, for, for young people who are looking to obtain contraceptives, I mean, they're really encountering barriers when it comes to that? Well, young people are telling us that they are. Um, in Quebec, which uh, purportedly has, uh, up until last last year anyway, was the place where uh, the fewest barriers were present because we have universal pharmacare for the last few years, uh, and we have a system of uh, uh, teen clinics, uh, uh, teen and young adult clinics, so youth clinics uh, for uh, STI and contraceptive care. Um, even there, teens are telling us that they can't get, sometimes can't get the contraceptive they want or that they have to stop a contraceptive that they are happy using because of the cost. So, um, and that's in the province where it's, it, it, uh, family planning providers identified it as the most accessible. Um, one of the issues is for in Quebec, uh, is the confidentiality issue, and that's something that uh, kids run into across across the country, and that is that they might have insurance to be able to get the, the contraceptive, but if they either don't want to or can't tell their parent, um, then they can't use their insurance. So we have this whole population of kids that look like they're insured, but they're not. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I mean, when we talk about contraception, that we're talking about uh, a lot of different things. That that uh, conversation about access to to condoms or the availability of condoms or the cost of condoms—it's a different kind of mm-hmm. conversation than, uh, say, prescriptions like the birth control pill. Yeah, and a different conversation, for example, than uh, access to the IUD, which is uh, IUD in the IUS, which is uh, the hormonal IUD, and those those are identified as the most effective means of contraception. We tell kids that this is the most effective means to prevent pregnancy, and then we get to the point of trying to figure out how to get it, and they can't pay for it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so now they're having, we've just told them, this is the most reliable method. Oh, okay, well, how about we use the pill? (laughs) Right. Um, So... We want to we want to close that gap. We want to make sure that every kid that doesn't want to be pregnant is able to not be pregnant and uh, have the best life trajectory possible um, because because for them, but also for society. Because at the end of the day, uh, there are costs that we incur as a society as well uh, because of those. Uh, early pregnancy. Right. Now, in turn, I mean, like teen pregnancy rates in Canada uh, peaked, you know, 25, 30 years ago. So we've been making progress, but... Yes. Right? That's not to say, though, that there isn't still work to do. Right. That's exactly right. So um, we shouldn't rest on our laurels. Um, the uh, the teen pregnancy rate is slowly going down, and that's, that's a good thing. But we still are running into kids having these problems, having, uh, getting, accessing contraceptives. 
And uh, I think if when people say, when practitioners say that kids don't have problems accessing contraceptives is because they're not asking or they happen to, or they happen to practice in an area that has, you know, there are some places that have ways to get contraceptives to the kids, but I'll have to, I have to tell you one of the things that I, it's very different when you're actually in practice because there's a lot of stuff that you're told as physicians that doesn't actually happen in practice. So uh, it, it's more complicated for kids than we we think it is. Mm-hmm. But okay, we, I mean, you use the word kids. I mean, we're talking about at least this position papers I understand it is talking about young people, which is defined as under twenty five. I mean, a twenty five mm-hmm. year old is in a much different kind of life position than than say a seventeen year old. Yes, that's true. Although we have, uh, and the reason that we took that that. That we we extended it to 25 was uh, partly in recognition that there's a large group of young people who are still dependents and going to school, and many of the insurance companies cover young people until age 25, and therefore those people are still facing that um, that issue with confidentiality. All right, so is the call here then for provincial health coverage to, to extend to, to these contracept, contraceptive products? Yes. Well, that's the simplest. It is the simplest solution. It's the solution that we propose because it's mechanically simple and because it would put governments in a position to be able to negotiate better rates uh, for all of these contraceptives. One of the, one of the things that has been uh, discussed in the really in the whole pharmacare question has been the fact that because each province regulates their own medications and so you're talking about much smaller numbers and uh, only certain ones are, are covered by the government and so the government really has very little leverage to be able to force better or negotiate better uh, rates. Mm-hmm. And by having... Uh, a universal coverage for the contraceptives, they would be able to get, they would be able to put, step up to the plate with the pharm- pharmaceutical companies and, and negotiate a better rate than, than they're getting now. All right. But I mean, there, there would obviously be a cost involved in this. And I, I think Absolutely. Right, around 157 million would be a national, is that a, a per year national figure? It's, it is a national figure, but it's a figure that has been calculated for all adult women to be covered. Oh, I see. Okay. And the $320 million also, so the $320 million in savings also for all adult women. So we were not in a position to uh, do the economic analysis for uh, adolescents. We threw around a few estimates. Uh, but but really, the econo- an economic analysis is not is well beyond uh, our ken, and so we we. But you can see that even if you cover all all adult women, you're 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 saving money. It's it, it, it's got to be a savings if you're doing it just for 
adolescents right. and young adults. So a smaller, adults. yeah, smaller cost, but also smaller savings. But but you still maintain that the research indicating that there is potentially a twofold return in savings as a result of this kind of preventative approach. You, you think that still applies here? Yes, and and further to that, we're talking about uh, the immediate savings. In other words, the savings that come from uh, right up to the, uh, so uh, those pregnancies either in, uh, end in abortion or birth. Uh, and uh, if you calculate it just to, to either the abortion or birth and not beyond that, because you have to remember that there, especially after a birth, there are also other uh, costs that are incurred. So uh, in places where they've done economic analysis that for the uh, for a teen birth they're seeing seven to one return on on every dollar spent on contraception right and it's an important point i guess not only in that we reduce the number of, of unwanted pregnancies we're obviously then reducing the number of abortions yes yes so well we uh, yes that that that's the whole point I mean, yeah. uh, is that all, all of unwanted pregnancies would be reduced. And we recognize that there are other factors that contribute to this, but this is an important one. It's been identified uh, by uh, uh, family planning practitioners across the country as the single most important uh, determinant, not just for kids, but for adults. All right. Well, people can read more, uh, cps.ca. Uh, Dr. D. Emilio, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. It was my pleasure. All right. Take care. Dr. Josie D. Melio is uh, adolescent health specialist in Montreal, author of the position statement released this week by the Canadian Pediatric Society, cps.ca. Well, certainly if you look back over the last 15, 20, 25 years, vehicles are a lot more fuel efficient. But it appears, at least here in Canada, we've, we've kind of stalled, as it were. In fact, a recent report, as our next guest writes, a recent report by the International Energy Agency, uh, Agency shows that Canada's vehicles have the highest average fuel consumption and carbon dioxide emissions per kilometer driven. They're also the largest and the second heaviest in the world. In short, Canadian vehicles are big, heavy, and guzzle a lot of gasoline. So why would that be? Why is it that we edge out even the United States on that question? Is it because Canada's cold? Do we need certain kind of vehicles? I mean, Canada's big. We often have to drive a lot of miles. But wouldn't that encourage us to buy more fuel-efficient vehicles? And this comes obviously at a time where uh, Canada is certainly trying to, to encourage Adoption of more fuel-efficient vehicles, implementing policies aimed at kind of nudging us uh, in that direction. Uh, well, joining us to talk more about this, uh, wrote about this at theconversation.com, is Blake Schaefer. He's an assistant adjunct professor at the University of Calgary's Department of Economics. Blake, great to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Great to chat with you again. So, I mean, this this does seem surprising that, that Canada would actually be at the top of, of these rankings. So, I mean, were, were you surprised? I was, you know, and that's what sort of prompted me to, to write this article is just 
the International Energy Agency comes up with this international comparison every couple of years, and uh, I'm a bit of a data hound, so I wanted to take a peek, and I, yeah, I, I was struck. I mean, it's no surprise that we're uh, at the upper end, but to be the very top was indeed surprising to me. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I think you did a nice job actually in the intro, uh, you know, summarizing sort of you know, why we might be up there. Well, and you got a graph in your piece that illustrates just how, how weird this this is, because when you look at the line, even going just from 2005 to 2013, so less than 10 years, we see a, a dramatic drop in the average liter of gasoline equivalent per 100 kilometer. Uh, and then things just kind of flatline, in fact, go up a little bit in the past couple of years. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So if you look at a trend over time in terms of our, our fuel consumption per kilometer driven in Canada, um, we weren't at the top back in 2005. The U.S. was above us. We both had those strong declines driven by these fuel economy standards um, in the States and in Canada mirrors them. But then you're right, as of about 2013, things flatlined here in Canada to a large part in the States too, but more so here. And really what's happened is that cars continue to, to improve on their efficiency, vehicles in general, but the type of car Canadians are driving made a dramatic shift around 2010 uh, towards trucks. And when I say trucks, I'm including uh, small SUVs and even crossovers, but not the sedans and coupes of old. Um, there was a big shift in, in, um, in preference towards trucks, and that's really caused this flatline on overall fuel uh, economy in Canada, just simply because the types of cars we're, we're buying are, are the less efficient types. Okay, because, the, I mean, that's not to say then that a Honda Civic purchased in Canada is less efficient than a Honda Civic bought in the U.S. or an F-150 or wh- whatever it happens to be, that, that it's, it's basically the same vehicle, it's the same fuel efficiency. Yeah, roughly speaking, maybe some differences, but roughly speaking, you're absolutely right. And even in, within those classes, they have been improving. So the Honda Civic has been improving as a its fuel economy over time. It's simply that we're buying more F-150s and Dodge Rams uh, than we are Toyota Corollas nowadays. Right. Uh, and, and that's really what shifted this is sort of average Canadian. If we look at the average fleet of Canadian vehicles, that's what's caused this flatline. And, yeah, a lot of people might assume that, well, that's, that's Alberta. And certainly Albertans seem to, to love their F-150s. But uh, you know, I, I read recently, in fact, Quebec. You're seeing very similar trends in, in Quebec of all places, right across the country, in fact. A- absolutely. I like to point that out because we're often sort of pointed to, you know, we're all driving F-150s over here. But this is a Canadian-wide phenomenon. Uh, even British Columbia sees this, you know, it's probably one of the greener provinces, um, sees this large shift towards uh, the category of trucks. Now, in the lower mainland, that might be more crossovers than pickups, but still, it's it's towards those types of vehicles. And it's it's across Canada. I think I even included a, a link to a chart in the piece where I look at each each province. So it's not just an Alberta thing. It's It's definitely across the country. So why is that then? I mean... Is it because, well, certainly there are people who buy pickup trucks because they have practical uses. Uh, that's one issue. I mean, there's the perception maybe that, you know, in, in tough winter months, we've got some tough winter driving to do. There may be perceptions around safety associated with larger vehicles. Does there seem to be a reason why? Yeah, I think I, I sort of narrow it down to three main reasons. And, and, and add on to that in the safety realm, what you just mentioned. So we're a colder climate in Canada, and so perhaps people, uh, you know, like the better safety of driving in a larger vehicle. Larger, these types of vehicles are the ones more likely to be all-wheel drive and whatnot. But 
there's sort of three things. So one is the safety aspect. So that that idea of driving a bigger car, you're going to be safer. And this is quite interesting. There's a really neat study done uh, from some folks out of Berkeley where they they looked at um, the likelihood of a fatality after an accident um, or collision. And the notion of bigger being better isn't entirely true. It's only better on a relative basis. This is sort of commonsensical, but, you know, small versus small, versus large versus large, the likelihood of, of, of a death coming out of those two is roughly the same. It's when you have these big differentials in the weights uh, between the vehicles that you get um, a high likelihood of, of a, a higher likelihood of a fatality in the, in the smaller one. So it creates kind of a safety arms race, if you will. Everybody wants to buy larger and larger vehicles because they are, in effect, protecting themselves at the expense of someone else. So, so there's that element. Um, I think there's also an element from the supply side. So not only might we have preferences for these larger vehicles, but certainly it's what's being a little bit pushed on us from the manufacturing side. There's higher margins from SUVs and trucks than there are from sedans. So it's not an entirely easy market to just go out and, and choose what you want to buy. For example, if you went to the extreme and wanted to buy an electric vehicle in Canada right now, there's a small selection to choose from. And even if you chose one, it's unlikely to be available uh, for the next three to six months. Whereas if I wanted to buy a, an F-150, I could, you know, go down to the go down to the truck store with my credit card and, and buy uh, walk out of there with the truck uh, that same day. So what's sort of available to us in terms of what the manufacturers are giving is is uh, an element in this. Um, but I think, for, you know, first and foremost, the biggest reason why Canada stands out and you know with the U.S versus the rest of the world just simply comes down to what it costs to drive a, a less fuel-efficient car. Uh, our gas prices, though, we like to complain when they go up. That's only natural. They're cheap on a relative scale to the rest of the world. So it makes driving these gas guzzlers um, far less painful here versus, say, in Europe, where you're paying a far uh, greater price for your gas. It's interesting, because I think you would see some cynicism on, on both the um, side of people that oppose carbon taxes or people that think they need to be far higher than they are that well look we've put uh, you know various jurisdictions have implemented carbon taxes it's it's having no impact at all is is it fair to look at this data and say that the carbon taxes are not affecting people's behavior i don't think it's fair to say that yet um certainly in canada where you know widespread carbon tax is very new um there's a couple things i could answer there so one would be look look to the nordic countries look to sweden where Similarly, um, cold countries, so similar climate, they do drive uh, you know, similarly sized cars, interestingly, but far more fuel efficient, and they have the largest carbon tax in the world. But the other one, if we, if we think about BC, where there's a bit of a longer history around that carbon tax, one of the interesting things that um, uh, two economists from UBC found when they tried to analyze the effects of it is, you know, we tend to think about carbon tax changing our driving behavior, so trying to uh, get us to drive less, you know, take bikes more, or public transit, or, or change behavior. And that's a challenge, and it's, it's understandable that, uh, you know, it's easy to foment opposition around that because not everybody can make those changes. But they identified another decision that the carbon tax can affect, which is the type of car we buy. And they do see an evidence of that. So they found that average vehicle fuel efficiency improved by 4% as a result of the carbon tax. You know, take that with a grain of salt. It's very hard to do empirical work around this because you have to have a, a good control group and whatnot. But they did find some effect of people moving to slightly better uh, cars than they would have otherwise uh, in British Columbia after the tax came in. 
And so that's a role, you know, six cents of the pump right now. It's not a, a huge driver. Um, but unlike the sort of daily fluctuations we see in the pump price, it's a permanent thing. Uh, to the extent politicians will change it in the future. It's more permanent in those fluctuations. It, it gives some salience to the thinking about our gas price. So to that extent, I think it's making people think a little bit the next time they go to replace their vehicle or buy a new one. Um, they might think a little bit more about the fuel efficiency of the car. Yeah, very interesting. All right, more uh, at theconversation.com. Your piece is uh, posted there. Blake, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Always great chatting with you. All right. Likewise, Blake Schaefer, adjunct uh, assistant professor, University of Calgary Department of Economics. Uh, his piece, when it comes to vehicles, Canada tops the charts for poor fuel economy. It's up at theconversation.com. So it's an interesting question about why we buy the vehicles we do. Now, certainly, I mean, there's, there's the question of brand preference. Are you a Ford person, a GM person, Toyota, Maybach, right? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, and, and further to that, you, I mean, you're a truck person, SUV person, sedan person, crossover person. Do you want a fuel-efficient vehicle? Do you want a big vehicle? Do you look for the safest vehicle? How much does fuel efficiency matter? Or at least in what context? Fuel efficiency might matter in that you're going to find the pickup truck that is the most fuel-efficient of all the pickup trucks, but it's still a pickup truck. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge, and you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.